What if there was a book called The Ungiving Tree? Maybe it went something like this. There once was a tree that had so much to give. It had branches to climb, leaves to jump in, and fruit to eat. But this tree wanted to keep his gifts to himself. (laughs) Every autumn, children would come and gather and play in the tree's leaves and make a pile to jump in and play in. Then the tree would call the police. The tree said, my fruit and my leaves are mine, 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 all mine. Uh, And the tree took all that he had and held it all in. What's the purpose of a tree? What's the nature of a tree? Genesis 2, 4 through 17 is about the purpose and the nature of trees and animals, and angels, and plumbing, and programming, and CEOing. Please stand for the hearing of God's Word. This is Genesis 2, verses 4 through 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first river is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The word of the Lord. All right, y'all, please be seated. All right, we are going to pray for uh, several needs that are in the church as well. So we're going to ask God to bless the text and uh, folks that are in need. So Lord, we, um, we thank you that you are the God who hears. And so you hear us. And uh, there is great celebration, the reality that you're the creator and sustainer of all life. And so we are so thankful for uh, Lewison Robert Putz, born to Bethany and Paul Putz this past week. Lord, we praise you, thank you for that. 
Um, we also want to bring uh, news that is very urgent. Lord, we're asking for help um, on the behalf of Martin, uh, Judy and Mike Guy's great-grandson, Lisa's grandson. Um, Lord, you hold that little guy in your hands, and we ask for the bleeding and the brain to stop. Uh, we ask for help. Um, we ask for healing. Uh, we ask that you'd be near this family, mysteriously so, personally. Lord, we want to pray for the Labasi's daughter and her back surgery. Just again, that would you give... Um, we know that all healing now is temporary, but it's an intrusive sneak preview of the ultimate apocalyptic glorified healing that we'll all experience one day. And so you don't, you don't tell us to hesitate, you tell us to ask for it. So we do ask for healing. Temporary, wonderful healings in this world, like backs and babies and things that just sideline us and cripple us and um, hurt us. And Lord, we want to pray continually for Martin. We're so thankful that he's here with us today and for Karen. Um, we ask that you would comfort him greatly. We ask that your nearness would be uh, a guard of his heart. We ask that your grace would soothe and satiate and satisfy we ask that your love would um, transform and heal. And then, Lord, we all have folks in our lives that were neighbors and family and friends that, that don't know you or are in a stressful time and do know you, and we want to pray for them now. <clears throat> So, Lord, we thank you that you're the God who hears and the God who heals. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, y'all, you got to have your Bibles open. you got to grab a Bible. You need an electronic device. We're going to be looking at the text a lot today. I want you to look at Genesis 1-1. And let's see how this text begins, shall we? In the beginning, God created the what? Heavens and the earth. Notice the order. Heavens and the earth. Now, I want you to drop to 2-4. You see this? These are the generations. Now, when it says these are the generations, the text is saying these are the families of. So these are the families of the heavens and the earth. There are 10 toledots, or these generations, these families that divide the big ideas of Genesis up for us. So this is, a, this is the first. So Genesis chapter 1 was an introduction to the book of Genesis. Now the toledots really begin. These are the generations of. Now watch what happens. The heavens and the earth when they were created. So this book ends 1-1. In the day that the Lord God made the what? The earth and the heavens, do you see it? <laughs> it's a new section, but do you see what's happening here? It's a literary trick. It's a subtle hand. It's a subtle shift in perspective. So in chapter 1, when it was the heavens and the earth, you were getting a view of, of creation from heaven. Now in chapter 2, it's a slight shift because now we're zeroing in on earth. 
and you're getting a view, earth and heaven, a view from earth of creation. So incredibly, the first book and the last book are doing the exact same thing. They're giving you a double vision of the same event, one from the view of heaven, one from the view of earth, one at creation, one at recreation. Revelation deals with the recreation. Genesis deals with the creation. But both the first and last book of the Bible are giving you a double vision, a two-angled way of looking at the same event. Isn't that incredible? That's why it's called apocalyptic literature. Now, the modern view questions this, though. The modern view says Genesis 1 and 2 just don't match. It says something's going on here. Two different creation accounts. And if we read Genesis like a science book, we're going to come to that same conclusion too. I want you to look at verse 5. If, the, if we make the Bible say something about science that it doesn't say, the Bible gets in a pickle. Look at verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. On what day in Genesis 1 did vegetation get created? Do you remember? I'll tell you, day 3. What day was man formed in Genesis 1? Day 6. All right, now pay attention. <laughs> it's a pickle. Now watch what happens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. And then what follows next is why the vegetation hasn't sprung up yet. Two reasons. There's no rain yet, and there's no man or woman to irrigate the land yet. Now, six, seven, you ready? Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Do you see what's happening here? Genesis 2 has man and woman created before the vegetation. Genesis 2 has day six before day three. What is going on here? If we make the Bible say things about science that it doesn't say, you get caught in pickles. So what is going on here, though? Genesis 1 and 2 are not in conflict. Genesis 1 and 2 are two different views of the same event. Heavens in the earth is Genesis 1. Remember, you get this crackling nine times, let there be light, and there is, breaking in from the heavens, creating realities and spinning worlds into be, all given a literary form of the image of a week. These are historical creatures, historically created, right? But then you get into Genesis 2, and we're, we're now boots on the ground. We're now on a view from earth, looking at the exact same event, but now we're looking at God's most magnificent creature, Man and woman, historically real, historically true, in all the historical wonders. It's not that this is not historical, it's not that this is not happening, it's just a different view, a different intent. One's giving you the king over all, all the creature kings that he just made as he takes his throne on the seventh day that has no evening or morning because it never ends. And then in two, he zeroes in on his masterpiece. And we're starting the families of the earth now. And that's the first Toledot. Okay? All right. Last week, we looked at what? God's image. We saw God's image had three elements to it. We focused on two. You had the resemblance element, the relationship element, the representation element. Remember what the resemblance was. In you and me, we resemble God in our intellect, our reasoning, our willing, 
and our relationships, but we also resemble him in our character and our conduct, the way we handle life we're supposed to resemble him. The also part is this deeply connected relationship. That's the origin of your identity. Remember, remember the Pulitzer Prize writer says, listen, the deepest nature of the human being is that he has an ache for cosmic specialness. Being deeply connected to God is how that ache gets satisfied. Then there's royal representation. It's not mere tokenism here. It is, it is the origin of cosmic significance that you and I actually get to participate in God's work in the world. We actually get to love life back to life. Today we're going to see all of them in creation and work. Trees, animals, angels, plumbing, programming, right? CEOing. Next week, we're going to see them all in action, resemblance, representation, and relationship. We're going to see it all at work in marriage and relationships. Do you see what's happening? So though the concept was last week in 126 through 31, now the concept is being embodied in life. So that's what we're going to do. So here's the question. What's the purpose of trees? What's the purpose of work? You know where the answer is? It's found in paradise. All right, look at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. You know what form means in the original language? It means it's, a, it's an artistic word. It's a word for sculpting. So God reaches into the dirt, the dirt he just made, and he, he sculpts man. He arts man. And it's so intimate, and there's such a deep connection in here, the relationship part of image bearing, he breathes life into him, and man comes alive. Whatever a tree is, whatever work is, it's life-giving. There is no such thing as an ungiving tree. There's no such thing as ungiving work. The very nature of work, the very nature of a tree is to give life. Look at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Eden literally means abundance, luxury, uh, paradise. It's a place of pleasure. Then notice there's a garden there in the garden. Look at verse 9. It's good for food. This is what you need to picture as a banquet. Picture just an extravagant, luxurious uh, spread of the finest foods. And then also look, it's a pleasant to the sight. And what that means is that it's beautiful, that everywhere you look is beauty. Everywhere you look is breathtaking. <laughs> everywhere you look, your senses are overloaded. You're satiated with your hunger, and you're captivated by aesthetics that just take your breath away. It's enjoyment, it's delight, it's walking on sunshine. And then in the center of garden, what do you find? You find that mysterious tree of life. See that verse 9? The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. Did you know the Bible begins and ends with the tree of life? 
It shows up in the beginning and it ends the whole story. So it's right from the beginning and it ends all things that we know now. And this tree, this tree has the highest potency of life in the world. That means in the world above and the world below, there's nothing like it. It's ultra life. It's super life. It's what the Bible calls eternal life. To eat from that tree is to be absolutely fully human. The way the world was meant to be. Did you know where the, notice where the garden was planted in Eden? Which direction? East. Oh, now this is a big deal. What rises in the east? The sun. So the sun comes creeping, and then it, come, it hits the horizon, and then once it, it leaps out of the horizon, light. Life. Do you know that if an Israelite that had just recently been released from 400 years, or at least their generations, their families, their history, 400 years of slavery, of being of dehumanized and oppressed, if a recently released Israelite from the chains of Egypt heard this read to them, heard these words, you know what they would do? They would have flashbacks. Flashbacks to the oppression and the abuse they experienced at the Nile River. Because what she would do is she would look on the West Bank and she'd see all these gods, shrines, icons, all the gods of death just lining the West Bank, all the pyramids, literal pillars of death to dead kings that they helped build lining the West Bank. Then she would look over to the East Bank and she would see where all the shrines and temples and icons and images of the gods of life stood because the sun (laughs) rises in the East and sets in the West. What's the purpose of trees? What's the purpose of work? Whatever it is, it's life-giving. There is no such thing as an ungiving tree ungiving work. Look at the four rivers that are flowing out of verses 14 through 10 through 14. Do you see where they're flowing out of? They're flowing out of Eden. This is always a strange verse. I mean, there's a lot of folks that are just trying to figure out what this is actually trying to depict, but what it's depicting is interesting. What does it mean? It means there's a garden in Eden, but there also means something else is in Eden. What? Rivers, four rivers flowing down and watering the face of the earth. What also has to be there? A mountain. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel says there is a mountain in Eden. And so what we got here, this is where the goosebumps need to come up a little bit. This is where if you're a kid, it's kind of like, ooh, this is like E.T. moment. This is a supernatural moment. This is an otherworldly moment. Because what's happening is, remember, creation, when God created the heavens and the earth, he created the invisible heavens and the visible earth. So both parts of creation are invisible realities and visible realities. And in the garden, in Eden, in the mountains, they met. The creatures in the invisible world and the creatures in the visible world walk the same streets. Hey, what's up? 
Have you ever wondered why Adam and Eve are not shocked when a serpent comes in and starts talking to them? I mean, I think one of the most interesting reactions is there's no reaction. It's almost like, yeah, just having a conversation with an invisibly worldly creature. That's why Eden is symbolized as a mountain, because heaven's there. And it's symbolized as a garden, because earth is there. And there is this overlap, there is this fusion, there is this union, that in that spot, heaven and earth mingle. One commentator, he's kind of breathless over this whole thing. He says, look, the whole scene represents this downward dissemination of heavenly life from God. It's like all of life is flowing from the throne of God. All of life is flowing from the immediate physical presence of God in the garden. The walking in the garden is not metaphorical. The taking of man and placing him in the garden is not metaphorical. The specialized immediate presence of God is there, heaven and earth are touching, and all the creatures therein, even serpents that talk. So what is the purpose of trees and work? What is the purpose of plumbing and programming and CEOing and mothering? Whatever it is, it's life-giving. It's blessing. It's gifting. There is no such thing as a tree that doesn't give and programming that's ungiving and coaching that's ungiving and being an engineering professor that's ungiving. There's just no such thing. They don't exist in this world. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden. Again, this is the immediate physical presence of God, to work it and keep it. It literally means to guard it. That word's going to be used throughout the rest of the Bible, and in fact, when it gets to the, gets to the Levites, their task is to guard the temple, guard the holy things, guard the tabernacle, guard the holy of holies. Their task is to guard, to guard where God meets, to guard little snapshots of gardens that are still present on the earth in Israel's history until the garden shows up. And so, isn't that interesting, guard it though? Doesn't that, doesn't that feel kind of spooky? Guard it from what? Has something already happened? Is something being prepared for? Chapter 3 comes right on the heels of this. Here's what's happening here. Here's what we need to see. Here's what's happening with the garden. Here's what's happening with the mountain. Here's what's happening with the four rivers flowing down off this mountain and spreading across the face of the earth. Here's what happens with Eden and then man being placed in Eden. Man and woman were given the task of work. And here's the nature of work. Their task, the nature, the purpose of their work was to extend and advance the garden over the face of the earth. This is where the kingdom of God begins. 
They were to cultivate the garden. Have you ever wondered, I, I've always pictured, how do they do this? Because if the garden's here and the unworked land is out there, but you've got the, the rivers flowing out there, well, they were supposed to, in the presence of God, in the enjoyment of God, being an image bearer, participating in his rule, extend and advance and stretch the garden, populate it, be fruitful and multiply, populate it with image bearers, work and toil it, release its powers, unharness and harness its potencies and its creativities and its latent life and loving it to life. I used to think they'd like be in the garden and they would run out and then keep running back because you can't stay out there. You got to keep running back, but it was meant to advance the kingdom, right? That's what's going on in uh, verse 128. Do you see that? And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That's what it means to subdue the earth. It makes no sense to advance or subdue the garden. It's already subdued. It's already what God wants it to be. So the very essence of work the very DNA of work is to flourish creation, give life to creation, to participate in God loving the world to life. There's a scholar, Michael Heiser, he says it this way, the original task of humanity was to make the entire earth like Eden. It, the earth, wasn't awful. In fact, Genesis 1 tells us that it was habitable, but it wasn't quite what Eden was. The whole world needs to be like God's home. God could have done the job himself, but he chose to create human imagers to do it with him. Eden is where the idea of the kingdom of God begins, and it's no coincidence the Bible ends with a vision of a new Eden-filled earth. Revelation 21, 22. In other words, that's still where things are going. But it takes a second Adam to do it, because the first Adam blows it. What's the purpose of trees? What's the purpose of work? There is no ungiving tree. There is no ungiving work. Here are some implications. I, there's tons of them. I'm just going to touch on three of them. Uh, there's no such thing as an ungiving work. I think that is just monumental. It's, it's important to know that whatever work you're involved in right now, whatever work you're doing, that its very nature is to gift others. Its very nature is to give do you see your vocation like that? Do I see my vocation like that? And we're not talking about ministry vocations. We're talking about every vocation, programming, plumbing, firemen, coaching, teaching, art, music, athleticism, studying. All of these callings and works flourish, gift others, give life. Second thing is work is a gift from God. It connects to your humanness. In other words, in the very essence of the image of God is the human reality of working. So your parents, kids, I'm sorry they're right. Laziness is not a good thing. It's just not. And the reason why laziness hurts us is because it doesn't allow us to be human. The innate ability to work is in your very DNA because it's part of being an image bearer. 
And the other thing about work being a gift from God is that work connects your work to God's work. What happens is, is that when you are working, God is working through your work to actually take care of people. He is actually providing for people. He's actually meeting needs and granting desires. He's actually giving. So when, when your work and you gift others, God is gifting others through you. This is incredible. This means, this is how we participate. How does your work connect to God's work? When you work, God's connected to your work. He is loving the world through you. He is taking care of the world through you. He is helping people through you. He is blessing people through you. And it's not just in the spiritual sense. It is in the sense of the embodied physical reality of this material world because this material world is being redeemed. Does that make sense? Okay. Last is that work is connected to a web of relationships. This is interesting. I got this from the Life of the World, Letters to the Exiles. If you haven't seen those videos, they're just great videos on work. They said this, we're tied into a web of relationships. All work is a mysterious collaboration, a massive exchange of relationships, the opportunity to join with others, literally millions and millions of others in the divine project of vast creativity and vast creative service. And then they go on to say, you are not alone. And you were never meant to be. This is what work tells you. Isn't that fascinating? What they are saying is that the way God has set up work from the very beginning is that it is enmeshed, it is interconnected, it is a community collaboration, it is ways in which relationships and people are touching through millions and millions of people all over the world. And it says to you and me, we were never alone and we were never meant to be, that work actually affirms relationships. Isn't that interesting? But in Genesis 3, we see that sin twists work into toil, doesn't it? That's what we're told. And remember what toil is. Toil, toil is not just your computer crashing, and it's not just your car wrecking, which we've had three cars wreck in two weeks. Isn't that great? Yeah, that's where it's like toil or something else. I have no idea. It's revealed a lot about me, I'll tell you that. Cars breaking down. Not, it's not, toil is not just you don't get the sale. Toil is not just lacking creativity and inspiration and energy for the day. Toil doesn't just mean that. You know what toil means? Ungiving work. It's doing work only for ourselves. There's no such thing as an ungiving tree, but what toil does is it turns our work into un giving work. And so we work for the weekend. And we work for mere profit. And we work for cold calculations of efficiency. Toil and teaching is working to get the applause, the approval, the appreciation of others. Toil and teaching is when you take your teaching, you take your gifts, and you take your abilities to try to control and influence people and manipulate them. 
toil in teaching is when teaching becomes an avenue or a stage or a trial where you're always trying to prove your significance and your cosmic specialness. Instead, teaching should be instilling like, it should be, it should be giving understanding and skill to whoever you're teaching and whatever subject it is. And it should be instilling a love of learning or a love of photography or a love of art or a love of music or a love of history or a love of literature. Just the wonder, sheerness of it, the, the beauty of it, the truthful, life-giving reality of it. This is why toil and business is just about making money and it's about the pressure to perform and it's the anxieties of being in the black. Do you know that the number one, the number one books that are being written in business today, because I had to read some of them these past couple of years, you know what they're all on? Organizational health as opposed to productivity or efficiency. And what all the books are saying is that it is much more important for there to be organizational health than then to have all your mechanisms and your efficiency structures in place. That when a business is healthy, everyone thrives, including the product, including those you work with, including those you're engaging your product with, your vast web of relationships and gifting and blessing others happens. I want you to look how God's name changes in chapter 2. Do you see that? It's quite fascinating. In chapter 1, it's God. God refers to himself. God is written and scripturated as G-O-D, God. But then when you get to chapter 2, do you see what happens in verse 4? Lord God, capital L-O-R-D, then G-O-D. And that's used now, Lord God is used 11 times in chapter 2. This is the name, you remember when, when God uh, was asked, who are you, to Moses and the Israelites? This is the name that he gave them. I'm the Lord God. So in other words, Lord God is God's personal name. This is the most intimate name of God. This is the name that God uses most often and flourishes throughout the Bible, the Old Testament particularly. It's God's covenantal name, some have said. It's God's grace name. It's God's name that's especially for sinners. It's God's name for those who toil. As the story of the world continues, the Lord God himself re-enters history. This time he doesn't embody himself physically in his immediate presence in a garden of worlds of pleasures and delights, a banquet and a feast of the eyes. He enters the toil, the land of toil. And while he's in this land of toil, he refuses to work for himself. He lives to give life to others. He dies to cause others to flourish. He rises from the dead to bless others who toil. And in the process, he has now healed work. He's healed the world. When you and I trust him and enter into a relationship and become back into being connected to him, 
and we start building our life around him instead of in our work around him, we turn back to what we were created to be, which is workers that give, that bless, that love the world to life again. So trees and work are life-giving because the Lord God has come again. And when we trust in the Lord God, you know what happens to your work? There's no such thing as an ungiving work anymore in your life. Amen.